Let's continue our morning in prayer. Lord, this morning we want to lift up, first of all, a people group. We're praying for the Chamar of India, 47 million people of which 1% are Christian. Lord, this morning we're lifting up a people group that is considered untouchable by their own Hindu people. Lifting up a people group that is um, struggling with poverty, joblessness, uh, being excluded from every opportunity. We're lifting up a people group whose own shadow is considered unclean by the other Hindus. What a ripe people. What a ripe people for the good news of the gospel. We pray a big prayer for a big bunch of people that we don't know on the other side of the world because we can pray to a big and able and capable and powerful God to stir something in a people group that we haven't met. To stir people here to be burdened and to go to the untouchables. Lord, also we um, pray this morning for a sister church. Uh, we pray for our uh, church plant in um, uh, Rockwall, Cross Point Community in Rockwall. Lord, we are so thankful and so blessed to hear and see the life that is going on in this church. Lord, we are um, overwhelmed by your goodness, your grace, and your mercy to plant a healthy people in Rockwall, or an, another, another, an additional healthy, healthy people in Rockwall. Lord, we, we lift up Kai, uh, Lance, and Ryan. Lord, we ask you to bless them. Lord, we pray that this ministry for them in, in uh, Rockwall and the surrounding areas would be fueled by worship. Pray that you would give them um, just a like-mindedness, that you would give them a Christ-centeredness, that you would give them a joy in the work, that you would guard them from compulsion, or that they would serve out of just worship. And that in that resource as they serve, that you would bless a people and you would equip them. That you would raise them up to be salty, bright, and aromatic in Rockwall and the surrounding area. We're so thankful to lift up our brothers and sisters there. Lord, we turn this time over to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Americans are among the most stressed people in the world, according to a recent, recent poll. Nearly half, 45%, felt worried a lot. More than one in five, 22%, felt angry a lot. The most stressed and the most worried were the 30 to 49-year-olds. If you're in that group, you can feel good. At least you have a lot of other people in league with you. Interestingly enough, the most angry group are the 20 to 29-year-olds. That surprised me. This particular poll was from 2018. It was making the case that these numbers have increased over the last decade. The people are more stressed and more worried now. It's interesting, though, if you look at the numbers closely, you realize anger is different. Stress and worry have increased, absolutely. But if you look closely at anger, despite a few dips here and there, it's remained pretty much the same at least a decade ago. 
when this survey began, this particular survey, was right at 22% a decade ago. The poll that we looked at, or that I'm mentioning this morning, is a Gallup poll. A guy named George Gallup started these polls in 1935, and I would not be surprised if he were to have a poll then about stress and worry and anger, that anger would be about 20 to 22% in 1935. There's no way to know for sure. But it is the most readily available, easiest emotion to feel. It takes no thought. It takes no pause. There's no processing involved. In fact, it's what people often express when they can't really figure out how they feel. They express anger. I reckon if George Gallup had been around about the time of the eviction from Eden and the time following that, that if he were to have a poll then, it would have been a really short list. But I reckon at least then he would have found also about one in four are angry. You know the story in Genesis chapter 4, we'll look at that this morning, of a man that was so angry that he even came to the point of murdering one of the only other living human beings. Anger is as old as man, and you'll likely see it on a daily basis, or you'll be it on a daily basis. It is almost always damaging. Man, I know of a few cases where it's not. Somebody got angry about slavery. Somebody got angry about some things that, thank the Lord, someone got angry about. Most of the time, though, it's damaging. I think most of us in this room can identify and understand that, identify with that. Jesus, though, has help for us today. Real, redemptive help. If you would, please stand for the reading of the word. Reading from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. You be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Lord, speak to us, please, from these holy living words this morning. Lord, please speak to us and equip us. Please speak to us through these words and give us an eternal view. Lord, please speak to us through these words and show us the centrality and the wonder and the glory of Christ. We're praying these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Y'all please be seated. We're in a section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is about to get into the dailiness of what it means to follow Christ. In some ways, he's going to be addressing six different things, six different very daily things that have to do with what your life would look like with Christ in it and on it. The first of those that we are talking about today 
is anger. But the structure of each of these is very similar. They follow a similar pattern. A couple of them have different just a tad, but for the most part, they each follow a structure. First of all, dealing with Torah. Okay, Torah would be the ancient Hebrew Jewish law. Okay, first of all, dealing with Torah. Secondly, dealing with an explanation. Jesus will explain the true meaning of that ancient Hebrew teaching and law in this case. And then the third thing is practical application. He's done this in nearly every single one of these six things, so we're going to follow his lead because that's basically the way a sermon happens every single week. There's God's word, there's explanation, and there's practical application. So they're like little mini sermon. So we're going to follow this morning his lead in working through verses 21 through 26. So let's first begin with Torah in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Turn over, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'll share the commandment. This should be a familiar commandment from Exodus chapter 20. It's the sixth commandment. It's simple. It reads, you shall not murder. Uh, This means, this word murder means the intentional and unlawful taking of life. It's to be differentiated from uh, killing, like what might take place for someone who's serving in the military. Um, or a policeman that might have to, on, on the job, take someone life. This is the intentional and unlawful taking of life. It would also include the unintentional taking of life due to carelessness or negligence. Okay, so uh, Genesis chapter 4 gives us at least a, just, a, I think, maybe an early picture into what this looks like. Uh, you'll find there that it is actually the second sin recorded in our Bibles. So this thing that we're talking about today, at least initially... That Jesus takes us to this topic of murder is at least nearly as old as man. Beginning in Genesis chapter 4, let's look how this unfolds. At least this second sin, this first murder. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his, block, his, his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The original Hebrew there would be slayed him. That's a word that would really connect well to the handling of the word over there in murder in the commandments, that sixth commandment. In some ways, I want to just differentiate, if I can, just the difference between Cain in verse 4 and Cain in verse 8. Cain in verse 4 is very angry and his face has fallen. You can see what it says there. Simple, simple little illustration. We're going to look at this guy. is angry and his face has fallen. Seems pretty pretty, uh, mild there. But then by verse 8, he has resorted to murder. So differentiate, if you would, between those two Cains. Angry Cain in verse 4. Murderous Cain in verse 8. 
And it looks like, at first blush, that the commandment, that sixth commandment, is speaking to Cain in verse 8. It looks like he's speaking to the murderer. But here's where Jesus is going in these next few minutes. Jesus says otherwise. Jesus says otherwise. So hopefully you've kept Matthew chapter 5 handy. I should have told you to do that. If not, go ahead and turn back over there. You don't need to be, be in Genesis chapter 4 anymore. I'll try and give you a cue if you need to keep it handy. We're going back to the Sermon on the Mount, going back to Jesus' explanation of Torah, Jesus' explanation of the real meaning and real intent behind the sixth commandment. In verse 22, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. There are three phrases here that I'd like to spend a few minutes sort of exposing and sort of unpacking. But first of all, we need to figure out who we're talking about here. Jesus is speaking to those in the crowd, but let's really connect to who he's speaking of when he says, at least in the first and the second phrase, he's referring to brothers. And he could also include that word would mean sisters as well. Who exactly is he speaking to? I think it's exposed later as you move through the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 18, he refers to this same group of brothers and sisters, and he speaks of a very detailed way between brothers and sisters who are supposed to do life together and work out circumstances with one another, and he actually develops the thought and the notion that he's talking about people who are in church with one another. He's not only talking about, he would absolutely at least be talking about blood brothers and sisters within a family. But he's speaking outside of that and speaking of those who are followers of Christ, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who would be part of a church body. In fact, he even uses that term for the first time over there in Matthew chapter 18. He's talking about church folk. Let's go ahead and climb into this and realize that this is aimed at followers of Christ of which we are in league. We are fellow followers of Christ. He is speaking to church people about conflict. He's speaking to church people about how to work these things out. Okay, so let's look at these three phrases. The first of these three phrases is angry, uh, that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, we don't have a sense there of what he's speaking there of judgment. It sounds sort of cloudy. It's undefined. We don't really know exactly. Is he talking earthly or heavenly? He just mentions it at this point. We don't have a good sense. But someone who's angry with his brother will be liable to this thing that sounds pretty ominous. Sounds pretty bad. The second phrase, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, the council has a little more shape to it. The council would be the scribes and Pharisees. That if you're guilty of certain offenses, you could actually be dragged before the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, and they could make some decisions and pronouncements about you. The high priest would likely be part of that same council. What's interesting here is this word insult in the original language, in the original Greek, actually means would be, uh, in the New American Standard, actually uh, phrases are, are, uh, gives it the, the term, uh, you good for nothing. Okay, in the original language, it actually means you airhead. Okay, really, I want us to just connect to that for a minute. What we're talking about is someone turning to another and referring to them as an airhead and potentially being dragged before the council, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. 
Now, if, if I don't have your attention, then just think for a moment if you've ever referred to anybody as anything more uh, grave than an airhead. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say, at least in my little catalog of things that I might say about somebody, airhead sounds pretty light. Okay, so let's just kind of climb in. We're talking about something that sounds kind of heavy along with something that sounds really kind of light. And then we move into this third phrase. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, now that might sound like we're really escalating here in, uh, in what we're calling people. But let me just kind of give you a little, little heads up about this. Jesus actually used this word, the very same word fool, in speaking of the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23. It's not, how some, it's not like some sort of ancient curse word that we only use in the worst circumstances. It's a very common phrase. And in fact, it's so common that Jesus spoke of the scribes and Pharisees of fools and referring to them as fools in chapter 23. Now, here's what I want to do just for a moment. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I want to first consider the, uh, the crime. And then I want to consider the punishment. And I want to show you something if I can. First of all, the crime in this first phrase is that you're angry with your brother. The crime in the second phrase is you've called him an airhead. Okay, the crime in the first phrase is you've referred to him as a fool. These did not escalate. Those did not escalate at all. Now the punishment. The punishment in the first crime is you're liable to judgment. The punishment in the second crime is you're liable to the council. The punishment in the third crime is you're liable to the hell of fire. That escalated. Can we all agree? Now, the, the hell of fire, just to give you a little sense of what he's talking about there, Gehenna, he's referring to a place outside of Jerusalem where they would burn their trash. It's the place where they sacrificed children to Moloch uh, in years before that. It's the place that's sort of an earthly visual of what eternal hell and damnation would look like. So in one case, these crimes are not escalating, but in another case, the punishments are. Now here's the point. I hope I didn't spend too much time on that. Here's the point. These should not be disassembled. We shouldn't try and make sense of who's in heaven and who's not, and which, which insult is too bad and which one's not too bad. Which one actually gets in just by the... the just, just by a hair into heaven because it's not too bad, and then which one is just, oh, that's too gruesome, you're out. We should not disassemble these. They're not presented as some progression of offense. What's being emphasized here is the dailiness, the commonness, and the very everyday thought and everyday reality of being angry with our brother, insulting our brother, and calling them names. What we're talking about here is Cain in chapter 4, verse 5. Not eight. We're talking about Cain in chapter 4, verse 5. The very angry Cain whose face fell. That's who he's speaking to right here. He's speaking to every day, gray day, being aggravated, being frustrated with one another. And he's coupling that with um, a grave, eternal even, consequence. Okay, I want to make sure that we're getting that. He's taking very every... Everyday thoughts that we have about one another, brothers and sisters, oftentimes, and he's speaking to a church again, oftentimes we may have about one another. And he's coupling that with grave circumstances, grave and even eternal 
circumstances. If we'd have been on that mountainside 2,000 years ago, we probably would have been looking around going, what is he saying? Now, murder, I know that's bad, but what he's talking about, Cain, in verse 5, he's just angry. What's the big deal? Well, Jesus says that is a big deal. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I was going to drink some of this. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say, don't entertain anger. And we could couple with that. Don't entertain hatred. Don't entertain contempt for your brother or sister because heaven and hell are at stake. Can we just let that sink in for a minute? I I think I want to say it again because I just really want us to just think on that. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, don't entertain anger or hatred or contempt for your brother or sister because heaven and hell are at stake. The reason I want to slow down in that, the reason I want to repeat it, the reason I want that really to sink in for us is because we're not talking about light fare here today, people. We're not talking about light fare. We're talking about something that's very common and very routine and very palpable that we can experience every single day. And we're talking about grave, eternal consequences in the very same conversation. We're talking about feelings that some of you may have for one another as I am speaking at this very moment. And we're talking about the consequences of heaven and hell. Please let that sink in just for a minute. We're talking about the very feelings that we may have at any given moment in life together as people of God. And we're talking about very grave consequences. One of the things that I have uh, considered over the years is I've struggled with conflict and and, um, bumpy spots in church life. It's always been kind of hard for me to make sense of. I've... uh, I like the thought of church being a little taste of Eden. I mean, I think most of us in this room feel like, man, I want to find that church that is a little taste of Eden. But the problem is it's not Eden, not quite. And it's still made up of people. And people do things to hurt one another. And people offend one another. And there's conflict and there's transgression and there's things that we have to do in life together that you will not experience um, in any church that you stick around. You will experience in every single church. I thought there might be some churches that might get away with with not experiencing that. I was thinking maybe that James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, He was probably their first pastor. So, you know, he's got this church that that was was a product of Pentecost. And James was a pretty special guy. I mean, we don't know a lot about James, but I'm just going to say that he's probably pretty special because he grew up in the household of Jesus. He's Jesus' brother. Okay, I'm, I can't imagine that a guy would have any more proximity, any more access. I mean, he, talk about being equipped. You grew up with Jesus. Now, you're probably going to feel kind of beat down. Like, man, I, my older brother is pretty awesome, and I'm, I'm just a knucklehead. You know, are your parents saying, why can't you be like Jesus? You know, that'd be, that'd be hard. <laughs> I'll never be like Jesus. But here he is. He's the pastor of this church here in Jerusalem. I think, well, maybe this church might be Eden. In James chapter 4, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. There it is. 
We don't know from the early church history in James that there's actually murder going on. It seems he's speaking something behind that. He's speaking of the anger and how we can treat one another. He says, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Man, I don't know of a church that's off limits from this. If you've read your New Testament, if you look in every epistle, I don't know of an epistle that has a church that's free of it. The only church that I can find in the New Testament that there's no hint of it there in such such a brief report is the church in, in Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. Man, they loved each other well. But we only have a few, we only have a snapshot. I can't but imagine they experienced what is common to man and what is common to life together in the local church. Conflict and struggle and transgression. We are talking about church talk. And we're talking about also at the same time, this is not something light. We're talking about something that has eternal impact. John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, he said, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Man, I hope there's not a person in this room that's not going, Whoa. Wow, seriously. This, this gives me tremendous pause. Man. One of the things that I think is, uh, is kind of cool here is Jesus is what he's doing here in this handling of this Torah and this very familiar commandment, this commandment that everyone in the room, as far as I know, I mean, there may be someone in here who's murdered. I mean, that, that's kind of scary, but that's possible. But as far as I know, most of us are not murderers. So there's a potential for us to feel like we're talking about someone else and talking about something else and talking about something extreme. But Jesus takes this thing that's out there, that's easily left out there, and he brings it in here and he gets real up close and personal because he's speaking behind the commandment. He's speaking beyond the commandment and he's speaking to the inside. He's speaking beyond the whitewashed exterior that say, might say, I've never murdered anybody, I'm pretty good. And he gets to the inner man and the inner woman and the inner boy and the inner girl and he says, if you've entertained anger, if you have entertained contempt for your... In some ways, the only difference between you and a full-fledged murderer are the bars. Man, let that hit you for a moment. The only difference between you and a full-fledged murderer, if you, like me, have ever been angry with a brother or sister and entertained those thoughts of contempt, the only difference between you and them are the bars. He's been speaking of wholeness in this Matthew chapter 5 section. We've brought this up a number of times, and he ends this whole section with this thought, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. That word perfect is whole. You must be whole, inner and outer. The outer might be nice and clean. You may have never murdered anybody, but now I'm going to speak to the inner part so we can deal with the inner, because if you're to follow me, if you're to be mine, and I'm to be yours... You're going to have to follow me wholly, inside and out. He's speaking to the whole man here. See, the problem is, in the Lord's court, the heart is no less culpable than the hand. In the Lord's court, where, where Cain was here in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 5, where he's very angry and his face has fallen, he's just as guilty as over here in verse 8 
as he murdered his brother. Can you just let that hit you for a minute? We're talking about wholeness inside and out. But it was the Pharisees that said, man, I'm good, I'm clean, I'm whitewashed on the outside. Who couldn't deal with the inside. The only difference between you, if you have harbored anger or contempt or hatred for your brother, and the murderer on death row is the bars. Because we're talking about inside and outside. If you haven't broken the sixth commandment, man, that is sweet. I'm thankful. I'm really glad that that's never been something that you've had to experience and not something that you have to live with. But that is not the litmus test for righteousness, people of God. Your hearts and your attitudes are. See, God sees us on the inside. It was an interesting passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, when, when uh, Samuel was going to identify and anoint the future king of Israel. He goes to Jesse's sons. He sees the oldest son, Eliab, and he's like, it's got to be this guy. Look at him. He's so tall and handsome. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the Lord's courts, the heart is no less culpable than the hand. Man, this should be humbling. This should be leveling in this room right now. I hope it's just feeling really level. I hope everyone is feeling the weight of this. It is far easier to hide a police record. Actually, you can't hide a police record. It'll find you. But you can hide your hearts. And you can hide what's going on inside. But the Lord sees what's going on inside. And our Savior spoke to that on this mountaintop 2,000 years ago. Together, we should be identifying that we have together a problem. Well, here's the good thing. Our Lord doesn't leave us in the mess. He explained it. He identifies that we're all guilty. And I hope at this point we're all listening and we're all thinking and hopefully asking the question, okay, what now? If it's indeed level in here and he's indeed told us how we need to live and move and what our lives look like with Christ on and in, I've got this thing that I have to admit inside is sometimes often dark. So how do I reckon with that? He gives two really practical applications. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. The first is a parable in verses 23 and 24. And the second is a parable, sort of, in verse 25 and 26. I'm going to spend about an eighth of a second on the second parable. But I want to take just a few minutes just to expose the first parable. Because it's beautiful. If you think, you know, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to walk this out? Jesus gives us a beautiful, practical application In verse 23 of chapter 5, he says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The first one. I just want to spend a few moments just considering this first little parable. Uh, It's likely that Jesus preached his sermon on the mountain in Galilee. We believe at least where he is in his ministries in Galilee at this moment. So this mount likely is somewhere in Galilee. Galilee is about 80 miles from Jerusalem. Okay? Not like a Jewish mile that's shorter or anything like that. We're talking 80 miles. Pretty good stretch. 
Okay? Preaching the sermon out here in Galilee, he says, if you're going to go offer a gift at the altar, there's only one altar that we're talking about here. That's the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. He's speaking of a rare occasion. A rare occasion where you're like, man, I really feel like as a family or as a, as a worshiper, I need to go offer a sacrifice at the altar. I'm going to take an unblemished lamb or a goat or something like that, and I'm going to march off to Jerusalem, the 80 miles from Galilee, and I'm going to make an offering over there. What Jesus is saying in this thing, where he's illustrating for us, it just sounds like, oh, well, this, I should leave church and go make a phone call or text somebody and clean things up. He's saying, here's what actually, let's develop what's going on here. You've traveled 80 miles to go worship at Jerusalem. You've walked them. There are no cars. You've walked it while you fed this little lamb or this goat that you're actually going to kill in a little bit. You're going to sacrifice. You've walked the 80 miles, and you get there, and you go to offer this critter at the altar, and you realize, man, somebody has something against me. I've transgressed someone. I've transgressed my brother or sister, and they have something against me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tie this thing up right here, maybe on the horn of the altar. Now, he couldn't do that. He couldn't get away with that. But maybe he ties it up outside, or maybe he leaves it with a friend. Hey, can I leave my little unblemished lamb here? I'll be back. He leaves it with a friend, and then he marches off back to Galilee, 80 miles, and he finds this friend that he's transgressed. And he does the very best that he can to clean it up with this friend that he's transgressed. And then and only then, he turns back toward Jerusalem and walks the 80 miles back to Jerusalem to then offer his sacrifice. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful picture he's given us here. If you've sinned against someone, you count that an urgent priority. So urgent that you'll walk the miles, you'll do the distance, you'll do it at this very moment, you'll do whatever you can possibly do to reconcile with a brother or sister. If you've transgressed someone, you're going to do every single thing that you can possibly do to clean it up. As a transgressor, you do all that you can do to make it right. Some other passages in our Bible that speak to this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun. Here's, I think, how you're angry and, angry and you don't sin. Is you don't let the sun go down on your anger. You give no opportunity to the, to the devil. You march back to Galilee. You go find that brother or sister that you've transgressed. And you do the very best that you can to clean it up. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Work at reconciliation. Work at peace. Treat it like it's urgent. Treat it like it matters. There's another layer here to this little parable that's really beautiful that we can't miss. How you deal with one another's transgressions has everything to do with God's treatment of your transgressions. We've been talking about some really heavy stuff this morning. Heaven and hell, let's consider that being another additional thought that's really heavy. How you deal with another's transgressions has everything to do with God's treatment of your transgressions. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Since we're there in chapter 5, just flip over the page. Let me show you something. What is developed in this parable is the realization that here I am going to make an, offer, an offering to the living God. I'm going to have this vertical connection between me and God, but that is influenced by something that's going on down here horizontally. 
So I need to hustle on over to Galilee and, and, and reconcile that. Because this, all this horizontal stuff affects this. They're not two separate things. Man, we love to compartmentalize those things and feel like, ah, oh, it's between me and God. I got this thing going between me and God, and this stuff down here doesn't matter. This stuff down here isn't connected. This little parable tells it it absolutely is. You're about to offer to the living God, you go back to Galilee and you clean it up. Look at what he says, what he teaches them in Matthew chapter 6 regarding prayer. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Very familiar prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And look what he says next. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know how it ends. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He only gives one explanation then for the content of the prayer. He only explains one aspect of the prayer, and that's what he says in these next verses. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He didn't explain any of these other aspects of the prayer. He made a beeline for explaining what I think is the most difficult for us. How do we work through forgiveness With one another, he connects it to the gravity of forgiveness of our sins by our good Father. Man, this vertical and this horizontal is absolutely connected. What we do with our feelings and our treatment of one another has everything to do with what God does with our transgressions. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive We've been talking about this. We've hit it from a couple different directions. When you're transgressed and when you're the transgressor. And in both circumstances, you make a beeline to forgiveness and reconciliation. This, in this case, you're actually the transgressed. Someone has sinned against you. And he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Right then and there. Years ago, we, were having, we had a series on conflict. And at that time, I, uh, I'd like to clean up something that I developed at that time. I developed that forgiveness was something that you could be poised for but couldn't really be realized unless it was consummated through confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. This passage says otherwise. In this passage, someone is transgressed, and when they're standing there ready to offer their offering and they're standing there ready to pray and they're standing there ready to sing and they're standing there ready to spend some time with the Lord, it says, forgive Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also is in, in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Man, what a massive consequence. How we deal with one another's transgressions has everything to do with what God does with ours. The first parable encourages to do the work of reconciling both in the horizontal because it impacts the vertical. They are interconnected, they are intertwined, and they are dependent on one another even. And the second parable, you can read that on your own. I'll summarize it with one statement. Live at peace with one another lest it spiral out of control and you find yourself in jail. That's the outcome of that second parable. That things could become so bad that you find yourself actually in jail. You know, if I thought at this moment that I could end the sermon, you know, I worked through his passage at this point, right? He had Torah, you know, the three parts. He had explanation, 
And then we had practical application. Right? Wouldn't that be enough? We could kind of leave it as, well, that's the sermon flow that he gave us. And we could leave, but we would leave everybody in the room like we're supposed to climb Everest, but without the gear, without the training, without the nourishment, without the ability, without the skill, without the aptitude, without all the things that we would need to climb Everest. We would basically dismiss all feeling like, well, I guess that's what I got to do, but without the means to do it. Let me show you, though, how beautiful this is. And this is where we're going to close the sermon. I want you to turn to one passage. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. This is how this actually plays out. If you got nothing else this morning, I hope you get this next few minutes. Verses 28 and 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is concluded, and this is sort of the summary statement. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Okay, it sounds for a moment that the, the crowds are like, man, what amazing teaching. But what they're saying more than that is they're saying, what an amazing man. His teaching is awesome, yes. His teaching is, is uh, it's left me undone. His teaching has left me unraveled. His teaching has left me in some ways decreated. But I'm standing here aghast. I've never seen anyone like this man. I've seen scribes. I've seen Pharisees. I've heard their teaching. I've seen the man, but I've never seen anyone like this man. Who is this man is the question that they're left with. And here's the encouragement for you this morning. He's not just the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. He's the prize of the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just the preacher that gives all this great teaching. They're left aghast because they're saying, who is this man? They're realizing there's something special about this being. He is the prize of the Sermon on the Mount. More than asking, how does this play out? How are we supposed to do what he's told us to do? They're sitting around looking at each other saying, who is this man? Here's the thing I want to leave with you this morning. He's the preacher, yes. He's explaining. He's illustrating. He's giving practical application. He's giving the most beautiful sermon ever delivered. But he is the prize in that he is the centerpiece of the sermon and how it plays out. He's the centerpiece of the sermon as the one who fulfilled the law in the Old Covenant. He's how all this makes sense. He's the only way this stuff makes sense and plays out in your life. He's how these things play out in real life circumstances. He is himself the answer to the problems of the Sermon on the Mount. If you, like me, go through the Sermon on the Mount, you go, how can I possibly do this? He's the answer. He's the only answer. If I'd stop that sermon right there, then we'd be left with Everest, and we might sort of say, well, let's just buck up here. Let's just do our best to just treat each other with gentleness and respect. Let's just do our best to extend each other some mercy and some grace. But if you leave Jesus out of that conversation, you won't climb Everest. He's the preacher, yes. But he's the prize. He alone is the means by which 
we climb this Everest. He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us. And we take it one moment, one day, one step like a lamp unto our feet, one bite of manna that lasts only for a day at a time. Some of the most difficult seasons that I have ever gone through as a worshiper of Christ, as a pastor of a church, I realize now we're lived out moment by moment by moment where all I could do and say and lean into was, Jesus, help, you, help me. Help me realize you are enough. Jesus, help me through these next few minutes. Help me through this meeting. Help me work at something that I am prone to because I'm lost without you. Help me need you. Help me run to you. He's what this sermon is ultimately about, people. If you leave here wanting to work on your anger, if you leave here wanting to work and deal with your contempt, if you leave here feeling like, man, I really need to reconcile with a brother or sister, I really need to share that I feel like I've wronged them or I feel like they've wronged me, man, by all means, please do all of the above. But don't leave Christ out of that equation. If Christ is centerpiece, if he's the fuel for those ventures, if he's the hope in those ventures, then you're on to something. Then you're doing something that I think is called worship. And you're moving in a way that your life has Christ in it and on it. Let's pray.